0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello and welcome to the World Fellows podcast. My name is Emma Skye and I'm director of the World Fellows program at Yale. My guest today is Mustafa Hyde. Mustafa, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for giving me this chance.
0: So Mustafa, you're from Aleppo. And I mean, I've been to Aleppo. It's one of the most beautiful cities in the world. And now it's being destroyed how did people that who used to live together peacefully for generations how has it come that they've turned against each other
1: Um, well uh, for me that when i think about this question um, i always think about how how deep and genuine the security and stability was in syria and probably also in other places in the world this is on one side because um, being like living in an authoritarian country uh, co- closely and, and severely monitored by intelligence and also where the information is not really public and you don't have the sense of access to that kind of information in terms of um, hate speech, in terms of also violence, stuff like that. We tend to think that everything is going well. But actually, I will find it that the um, most probably also the reality would show when a conflict or crisis would happen in this country or that country. And this would give you the sense that how much has been undercovered and then just released in the service. And I think this is the situation probably also in Syria. Besides that, also, if you look behind into all of these conflicts and genocides, and I was astonished when I read once that the genocide is not done by devil people, it's done by good people where over, overnight ni- good neighbors would really start and killing yeah. each other. So it's also the question of uh, how, how humans tend to be different persons when they are survivors or when they are also manipulated by hate speech and also by violence or when their options are really being limited and also the resources and besides other things. I think, I think all of that should be taken in consideration when we think about what's happen, happening either in Aleppo or another divided city.
0: So you're now a human rights activist. When did you decide that's what you wanted to be? What inspired you to become one?
1: So whenever I think about that, because this is probably the question that I've been asked many, many times. And I always, every time I, I hear this question, uh, the first flash I got in my memory is that moment in 2000, when I was sitting in a cafe in a label browsing internet for the first time in my life. And this is when I found it out. And it was totally by chance about what happened in my country in the city of Hama in the 1980s, where the government killed and detained thousands of, of civilians. I was really shocked because I never knew what happened. I knew that something happened. And I only uh, knew the the narrative of the government, where we studied in the school that a couple of gangs and also spies, those who are being paid by the foreigners, did this and that in the country. But then it was the first time I read about this human rights report uh, from a Syrian Joe who is based in London, and I was totally shocked to have all of that, like having this door open to this amount of information. And I cannot tell you like how, how scary I was at that moment because mm. such, just like browsing such information could really change. It must have been a you. shock when you saw that. Absolutely. I was like really shaking yeah. because also the cafe is being censored. The country is being closely monitored by intelligence and such thing. Even talking about this topic would really change your life. You might just disappear. And this is why nobody would touch this. And the easiest thing is that really just to turn your face the other way and then forget about that but I didn't do that I don't know why I just you know took this information and shared it with the friends colleagues like over the the days and nights and also this what encouraged me even more to dig more and more and read more about what's going on and I think that moment really pushed me also to think that I shouldn't be like really afraid I shouldn't be like risking my life just to access a piece of information I think it's the right of every single person in the world and I think this is when I started digging more and then becoming, you know, more advocating for human rights. And especially I was like at that time talking about basic rights, like access to information, safety, democracy, freedom of speech, freedom of association. And I've been surrounded by friends who spend much more longer than my life itself. I've been like at that time with a friend who spent more than 36 years in prison. He went mm-hmm. to prison when he was 17 years old. And I couldn't believe that. I thought like, you know, probably he did something huge it was just he was in a meeting on like for a communist political party at that time and i find found that like fascinating how like the cost you will pay for a small simple thing even if you agree with that or not it's like the simple right for him to associate and sit with people he wasn't violent he didn't kill anyone he didn't commit any crime so this is when you know things started really to push me to do more and more in and also in more systematic way and it was very risky and dangerous i was lucky just to be banned from travelling
0: So did you get into trouble with the government? Were you on their radar?
1: Absolutely, and I participated in one of the human rights meeting in neighboring country, and the government, they knew about that. And then it cost me four years of travel ban, which I had to live in hiding in my own country for four years, till the Syrian uprising really started. And then we had the chance to leave the country.
0: So when you said live in hiding, what does that actually mean? How do you live in hiding?
1: So it's like simply like just being a ghost, because when a travel ban could be also message that I would I discover that that my name is in the border. So this could be also an indication of.
0: So if you tried to leave the country, the government officials would stop you. The border officials would stop you because your name is on a list.
1: So what what we used to do at that time, because also before the Syrian uprising, we had what we called the, the Damascus Supreme and it started in 2000 and was also killed in 2003, is that when your colleagues would advise you before you leave the country or you do anything, you know, pay a bribe of 500 Syrian lira, which is like probably $10. And then check if there is anything about you, because this is one of the sides that you could use also, which is the corruption when you have an authoritarian regimes. And then I I checked my name, and they they told me that your name is in the border, so don't try to travel. And this could be also an announcement that you know you might be uh, wanted to you know to either to prison or whatsoever. So this is why I hi- I have to hide. So not no hotels, no public transportation, also not visiting my family, changing my address, being very, very careful in terms of where I am and what I do.
0: Did you have to change your name? Well,
1: my my friends used to call me since 2000, like different name. They used to call me Steve, which would sound like more suspicious. Also, <laughs> Steve, like, If Steve. someone is monitoring like that. But I mean, um, this is, was really the name. And even till now, like some of my family members, they still call me Steve, which is also, I find it like funny. But but this was like, yes, part of the process, uh, you know, using different name and also, you know, different number, n- no address, not really calling my family because also I wanted to protect my family because security was all the time going there and, and trying to find out where I am. Uh, also, I avoided the military service, so they were also going there every time, raiding the house, searching for me. So for me, like being also away from my family was kind of also protecting them from these consequences, which in a normal country is supposed not to happen. <laughs> also, this is an extra reason pushing me to do more on this side as well.
0: So when did you set up your own NGO?
1: So the I, I said I, I founded the NGO in 2012. So the idea started in the late 2011. And the main reason behind that was the already the, there was a d- division happening between the peaceful activists in Syria. And this is when some of the activists said that, you know, you cannot really change the regime by just being peaceful because also the regime was really extremely brutal in dealing and crushing also the protests. And this is where not just the city of, of Daraa in the south of Syria, another two main cities, mainly Hama and also Deir ez-Zor, has been raided with the heavy weapons. And people started thinking like also with the casualties that, you know, this is not a way of... Doing that is not gonna succeed. Besides that, also the regime released some of the Islamists from the prison, in which also they start calling for jihad. Um, some of the women started to just, you know, pop up in the country. And this is this has led me to see that okay, we need to do more on this side because it looked like the nonviolent activists, they didn't really pick up nonviolence because of strategic decision or because they believe in this decision it was for many of them it was the only option available so once they had another option maybe they 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 choose that so it's like for me it was more the more they know about this the more that they might protect it and they the less they know they, they the more they would be like really easily abandoning these demands and I've seen this in into many uh, protests, also in other cities. So this was the logic, and also the ration behind creating a Syrian NGO who would be committed to nonviolence and also working with uh, uh, peaceful activists to uh, increase their capacities and also to benefit from other experiences uh, in, in in the world.
0: Syrian so NGO is called Dawlati. What does Dawlati mean?
1: So Dawlati means my state, and and this is also. Bring us bring bring us back to individuality because what happened is that since I was a child and and also all my uh, fellow citizens that we've been created in a way that we should imitate the state It's not that we create our state and also you know we vote and stuff like that so voting wasn't right for us it was a duty so we where we've been pushed and also really sacrificed and 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 uh, threatened if we didn't do that. elect one person so it wasn't even like an option also to to have many participants or or candidates in which you you pick one of them it was only one and you have to go every seven years and make sure that you say we want this person forever so it's like it was always the state uh, creating us and also you Mm -hmm. know making us with the same color making us also chanting for every single thing we were just you know a copy we just like uh um I don't like the commandos of the the government or the the these minor actors in in, in a film or a series of 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 uh, films. So the logic also behind that the first thing should start by you know recovering back our state. It's our state. We we can you know decide what kind of state we want. We decide also to vote or not to vote and beside many other things. So it's like the first goal was just to have it to own it back. It's it's not we are not them. They are yeah. ours. We are not there, they are ours. Like, yeah, this was also the logic behind the name as well.
0: So what are the activities that your NGO does?
1: Well, I just, as I just mentioned, that we started as an um, NGO committed to nonviolence, also working on nonviolence and civil disobedience. And then with the escalation uh, you know, of the Syrian conflict, we find ourselves doing other stuff. So, when the most of the, also man, many, many of the areas in the north of Syria went out of the control of the government, the government cut the communication and the internet, and they were isolated from the walls. And this is where we thought we need also to provide some of the alternatives. We don't want people to be isolated because also they can be easily manipulated and also getting more and more extreme. So we worked more on empowering peaceful groups, because for us, the logic stayed the same. We only work with the groups and activists who are committed to nonviolence. Because those are the groups who believe in our principles and values and because also we think this is the best approach to have a democratic transition, not only a political transition in the country, besides the fact that we knew at that time and also it was also a fact that many regional and international countries were interested in providing arms and others. So this was the most vulnerable groups. And and we try to empower them by providing also technical support like satellite internet, cell phones, cameras, providing training on safety and security, because this is also when they didn't have only the risk from the government, but also from other extreme groups in which many of peaceful activists is being kidnapped and killed by Assad regime and also by by, uh, other extreme groups. And then we start working with focusing more on youth and women. We didn't see them as uh, victims. We worked with them as also survivors, but also as heroes and, and, and actors of change who are trying to do, you know, good things in their own communities in a very, very tough and dangerous situation. So we started to more and more shift more to do what, what we can do with them. And this is also when the extreme group started spreading in the north of Syria. We started to work on how we can challenge this Narrative. Also, we ca- how we can really minimize the the tools, the recruitment tools that they are using. Again, is the, the youth, and one of these was uh, the rumors because they used to use the videos from Iraq, other places to recruit youth. So we we also trained activists on information verifications and and also on um, rumors management. So just to minimize this risk, and then many things. Other well, now we are doing programs on transitional justice beth- beside other topics.
0: I mean, over 400,000 Syrians have been killed and over half the population has been displaced from their homes. When you see so much death and destruction, what keeps you going? How do you maintain your hope?
1: I think when when you are desperate, either you just give up or you be more, more committed. And for me, I think... I cannot hide the fact that I'm really very, very uh, depressed and also um, very pessimistic about what's going on because I n- I know names, I know friends, and also I know family members who just lost their lives because of what's happening in Syria. And it's it's frustrating to know that you couldn't save not only saving you know their lives, you cannot even save the other lives that have been you know lost every single day, even while we are speaking right now. I'm pretty sure they've been bombing in many of not just one place but in many of the cities among them also Aleppo where my family is living. So for me it's uh, there is no way to give up because it's not it's not over yet. So as long as I can save even one one life, as long as I can f- let someone who who think or she he or she thinks that they are Abandoned by all the universe that there are someone who is still struggling with them and supporting them uh, This would be like an enough reason for me and also at the same time Seeing all these misleading information all these naive uh, Broadcasts and also news reports and stuff like that that really simplifies the conflict to be ISIS and, and Assad it's very frustrating and it's pushed me every time To also provide more knowledge that this is not the case as also not just as a Syrian because I'm a cosmopolitan as well. But this is like responsibility for me because I have the connections. I have the, 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 the information and the knowledge about what's going on. And this is also responsibility that I should share with others. I should let them know that what you are seeing in the news is not really what's happening, it's just part of the fact of what's happening. And also at the same time telling them that the Syrian government till now is number one in killing civilians in Syria. Like actually, the Syrian government is killing ninety four point seven percent of the the casualties in Syria. Till and what, now,
0: what percent are killed by ISIS?
1: So ISIS, if you take the the number, this reflects from March two thousand eleven till June two thousand and sixteen. Um, ISIS killed one point one, which is two thousand one hundred and ninety six civilian since they've been created in 2013 till now.
0: And the regime has killed 95%. Yeah. How so, many people is that?
1: It's, one, it's like this also the only the documented numbers. Yeah. So which means that the, the, the names that have been verified in terms of who they are, where they have been killed and who killed them. And from um, different resources, cross-checking resources and also first-hand information. So these documented numbers that indicate that the CN regime killed so far till June 2011 like uh, 2016 documented names one hundred eighty three thousand eight hundred twenty seven civilian so this is very frustrating because when you see that the much more and and this is not in terms of comparison who is who is bad and who is the worst but in terms of the scale of crimes that you've been seeing happening this happening since March 2011 until now which is like more than five years and still it's uh, ongoing in terms of the scale of crimes and also in terms of the brutality and the the the, 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 uh, the weapons that has been used in the conflict, is very, very frustrating. But this has also pushed me more and more to do more, not just, you know, give up and sit down.
0: The international community, I mean, at one level, it's very much focused on ISIS, but at another level, n- very little is being done to stop the regime from killing its own citizens. Do you feel abandoned by the international community? Do you feel the world needs to do more to stop the killing? Or do you just feel the policy is completely wrong?
1: I think it's it's part of the both, because as I told you, like as a cosmopolitan, I feel that I belong to this world. It's not just I belong to Syria. And this also would put me under more pressure when I see the, the world that should do more, because we are all part of this world. And we are not just part of this world in terms what the threat that Syria is bringing to this world, but also what opportunities the world could bring to Syria. I mean, this is also the other part of a globalization. And I think the uh, refugee crisis is a great example of that. It's it's not somewhere problem. It's our problem wherever we are. And we if we don't really solve this problem, because these guys are not really fancying just taking boats and risking their lives and their children's lives to be somewhere else. They are showing that you cannot just abandon us. You cannot just ignore that we exist and we are suffer. It's like it's not our own problem because these jets are not (laughs) made by us. And also Mm -hmm. at the same time, even when you look into the other side of the extreme group, that we understand the concerns of the world, that they are concerned about the threats that these extremists are bringing to them as foreign jihadists. But also they should understand that their own citizens, that if you have jihadists coming from France, or from Italy, or from US, or whatever, that this jihadists is right now in Syria and Iraq and killing my own people as well. And this is also a responsibility that these countries should take, is not just by preventing these jihadists from returning back to their home and doing this risk, but because they are right now doing this risk and killing other civilians in another country. So it's not just one way of looking at, you know, uh, what, what should be done to protect our own citizens. It's what should be done also to protect the global, because this jihadist is not like the nationality doesn't matter right now in this sense. Yeah. They are cannot be, they can be long, like lone wolves. They can be also part of the groups. And they, you know, they always find the grievances to really recruit and also stimulate more and more violence. So this is this is the key thing that I think that the world also should really open the eyes on.
0: And, you know, if you could advise the next US president, what would be your advice on what his policy towards Syria should be? I mean, he said some things in the media about wanting to work more closely with Russia to defeat ISIS. And there's a sense that he would be okay about Assad remaining in power. I mean, that's the Russian position.
1: I mean first of all this is very very frustrating because in one hand that you are closing eyes on 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 all these crimes that took place in the country and you, you are just acting from a very pragmatic point of view which again which again can really harm everyone in the future because what the Syrian conflict showed is that This is a crisis, like this is a globalization crisis. I mean, the crisis, the technology and all of that tools we use to use for good is going to also be used uh, for bad things. And this is where every single app can be turned into a recruitment tool. And failing to address the roots of this crisis right now in Syria means that the next crisis to happen in the future is going to be like more horrible. Not in terms of that country, but also in terms of the universal stakeholders and also in terms of the damage that would happen globally. And I think by ignoring that fact, you are not really doing good. Even if you are thinking even if the American president is considering to bring America great again, I don't think this is the way of bringing the uh, the America to be great again. Um, I'm not in favor of American intervention in Syria and also not in the favor of the Russian intervention in Syria. I'm in favor of the term that we need to protect civilians and there could be other ways of doing that other than just going there and bumping um, either what, whatever groups and also not caring about the casualties that happen. But also at the same time, ideas and ideologies cannot be faced by just pumps and bullets. This is not going to work. And every single example in history is telling this story to us. Look into Afghanistan, look into Iraq. Like ISIS is, is born out of also the, the, the uh, Islamic State of Iraq before. But look what how it was in Iraq before in two thousand and three and two thousand and four, and how it is now. And imagine how it's gonna be in two two thousand and twenty or two thousand and thirty in another conflict in another country.
0: Well, if the root causes that you know created the conditions for ISIS are not dealt with, and more grievances are created, then we'll see son of ISIS in the future. I mean, think that is the fear.
1: Yeah, but also going back to your question about the American-Russian that the the um, president elected showing the interest of the also cooperating with Russia to really end the conflict. All the data that uh, I have, and also, you know, being monitored very closely about the, either the coalition and also the Russians in Syria, it's like it's really causing the minimum effect in terms of countering ISIS. It's just the opposite. This is a flaming the situation. And this is also flaming the sectarian incitements in the region. And I think the first thing that they need to do either in America or Russia and other places, to deal with this crisis, you need to have a different approach. And again, to, fo- to highlight the fact that it's not just, you know, bombing ideas and also bombing groups not the only way. There are many, many other ways, and they, they can easily find out on, on these alternatives if they are interested in.
0: But after so much violence, do you think Syrians will ever be able to live together peacefully again?
1: I mean, again, the history showed us that there is no eternal violence. There is no eternal conflict. It's There is a circle in which also all this escalation would end up. Because always the conflict is about something to happen. It's either by breaking the will of rebels and pr- pr- protesters and bringing back Syria to what it was before. And then waiting for a couple of years or maybe a couple of decades where it's going to blow up again in much more extreme situation. Or where it's going to be really a fair deal. That... Also, you respond to these grievances and also you held people accountable for what they did in in Syria and also in other places, where also you sustain this peace. Me personally, I believe that all the experiences and the way that being the peace process happened so far is that by sacrificing the justice and, and focusing on bringing security back to, uh, to, to any of the conflict or to the countries. And I think this is a very failed uh, scenario because look into all the Examples, look into Afghanistan, into Iraq, into Lebanon, into Yemen, look into um, also many other like former Yugoslavia, look into many other countries also in South Africa. By just ignoring that, this is going to happen again. When, when, when wars started also in former Yugoslavia, you've seen the, the people talking about the invasion of Turks. Hundreds of years before. The same thing also we see in the narrative right now in Syria and Iraq, where they are talking about division between Sunnis and Shia um, like 1,400 years ago. It's like these chapters, if you don't close them, they cannot reopen again history, and they are re- re- reopened in a most brutal and violent way. And this is what I'm trying to also accept then during the whole interview is that we need to try something different. What if we tried something different like holding these people accountable for what they did and also make sure that justice will take place and try this different approach? Because all the time we are trying the other approach. Why we don't try another approach here?
0: No peace without justice.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: So Mustafa, thank you very much for joining me.
1: Thank you, Emma, for having me.